One Charlie. Mark, one Charlie. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. And we're still seeing it quite well through that haze. About the future innovations and growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another fantastic episode of Finding Your Frequency. I am your host today, Ryan Treasure. Man, I really love doing these shows because we get the opportunity to you know, speak to people in business and in, in, in all different sectors and find out kind of what makes them tick, allow them to tell their story about uh, how they found their frequency in life and in business. And I think one of the most important things that one can talk about, no matter what age you are, is what are we doing with our finances? Do you have a plan? You know, it, are you are you going to retire and run out of money, or are you not saving enough money while you're working so you can retire? I think these are questions that every person needs to be asking themselves uh, on a on a annual basis and making sure that they have a proper plan uh, to do what they need to do with their money to make it last for them. Uh, and what better way to 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 help guide that roadmap for you as an individual is by using a financial financial advisor. And I don't know about you, but if someone's going to be messing with my money, I want to make sure they're really good at it. So today we have an expert in the field, author Richard Franson, who wrote a new book we're going to talk about. So you want to be a financial advisor, you better be the best. Why not be one of the best? And so I want to welcome you to the show. Richard, welcome. So Richard, we appreciate you taking time to join the show today, uh, and and it's really cool that you've written this book, and we definitely want to talk about the book and uh, financial advisors and money management and all of those types of things, but I think before we go down uh, that road, let's kind of take a step back and uh, allow you the opportunity to kind of tell your story about how you found your frequency in life and in business and decided to follow the path that you're on. Well, it's interesting because originally I had no intention whatsoever get into getting into this profession. Uh, my original degree was radio and television broadcasting, and I worked with a lot of clients to do radio advertising. And somebody finally said, hey, you know, really what you're doing is kind of the same thing where you're finding clients, coming up with solutions and making recommendations. You ought to look at the insurance and financial industry. And I thought, nah, that's not for me. Then I had an opportunity to kind of meet with somebody that was in the business and was with a very reputable company. Went, oh, huh, that's kind of different. So the chance to kind of work with people, uh, find out what things are important to them, be able to make recommendations and work with them on a lifetime basis is kind of what attracted me to this. And I started this actually August is my 45th year. So had it for a while. So you've been at uh, being a financial advisor for 45 years. You've seen all kinds of different market shifts and uh, different kind of strategies and all those things throughout the years. Is that right? Oh, that's exactly right. As you can imagine when we went through 2008 where the market dropped so much and We've been through periods where the market's done exceptionally well. I've kind of seen it all. One of my big things is to spend time on education. And I think I've been fortunate from the standpoint that when markets go up and down, I don't get that many calls from clients because they understand where they're invested, why they're invested, and that things do go up and down. Of course, the smart ones figure out if the market goes down some, that's the time to put in more money. So I think I've been blessed with the clientele that I have. 
it's a great relationship and they kind of understand what they're doing makes my life much more easier. So what's um, like a typical client that you work with? Are they people that are already retired, getting ready to retire? Or are you working with, you know, millennials who are midlife workforce? Well, as you might imagine, since I've been in the business 45 years, uh, my career started off with people that were much my age at the time. So a lot of the clients I have are ones that I've had for many, many years. And we put together strategies as far as insurance products and financial products and investments. And I've been monitoring those and work with those clients for years. In the past several years, one of my focuses has been on working with family-owned businesses on succession planning. And that's been an important topic to help people move their business to the next generation. And of course, involved in that is the overall financial planning, retirement planning, et cetera. So some of the clients that I have are, uh, we're about to the point now we're distributing funds that we've accumulated over the years, but yet it's also allowed me to run into people that are saying, okay, I'm getting ready to retire. I've got these funds on my 401k. What do I do? How do I make my income last? Where should I invest, et cetera? So I kind of have a, a little bit of a mix of everything in my client base, which is actually a lot of fun. Yeah, I bet it's it's fun. You know, I, that's I think financial uh, just kind of fluency as a whole has just been something that's kind of been lost in America in in, in generations. I know that. I had a finance class that I took in high school um, in the early 90s and, you know, it was great that we could do that. But I talk to kids now who are, you know, in high school and there's no home economics. They're not learning how to cook at school. They're not uh, they're not learning, you know, financial uh, things. They don't know how to, you know, balance a checkbook. Not that balancing a physical checkbook is important now with all the digital things. But I think there's always uh, some some imper- inherent uh, information on, on how something works that's important important for you know people to understand uh, are you are you seeing some of that too that just people aren't quite as versed in in, in financial affairs well, what surprises me is there's not more courses in college that really focus on this it seems to me that's something that the colleges should be focusing on because as people go into the world some of this stuff is common sense even if they go to work to an employer for the first time the question is okay i'm in your 401k where do i invest my money what choices do i make so having a basic understanding of investment choices, especially in a 401k, to me is very important. So yeah, I think there needs to be more education in the, the college ranks. And of course, then when getting out, uh, people kind of go, well, I have no idea what I'm doing. And finding somebody like me is kind of the secret. They can have somebody that can educate them, help them walk through what is a mutual fund, what are stocks, what are bonds, et cetera. And then they kind of become most appreciative. They go, oh, this is great. At least now I kind of have an understanding more of what's out there. And when I look at my 401k, for instance, I've got a better idea as to what choices should I make. Now I know how I should look at it. When you look at some of those choices with, um, you know, some investments and things that you might be looking at for your, your customers and people that you work with, how do you identify those? Because I know like right now, I'll, I'll be honest, you know, we had the whole 2008, 2009 and you know, the real estate issue and stock markets all went down. And um, I had a mutual fund at the time that had a pretty high value, which about lost all of its value. It's, you know, finally after what, like 10 years back up to like $20,000, which is less than what it was when it crashed. But that kind of scares me a little bit as a, as a human being. Like I'm, I'm like kind of uh, at a point where I haven't really put anything into it because I don't really trust that it's going to be okay or those types of things. And I, I think that's a lot of things that people think about. How do you advise someone to know, like, you know, when to get out of the stock market and get into like some other 
product or something like that versus, you know, this being in the stock market? Or do you feel that the stock market is like the best place for someone to uh, engage their money if they're, I guess, adverse to risk? (laughs) Well, if you look at the history, the markets outperform most everything else. So in the long run, the stock market seems to be a pretty good place to go. There's actually a combination of questions in there that you asked. The first one is, you know, kind of going back to the idea of being a good financial advisor. The first thing is to listen and kind of find out exactly what the client's objectives are rather than making recommendations initially. You kind of go, okay, so what are you trying to accomplish here? And whatever you're trying to accomplish can make a difference as to what suggestions you make as far as investments. The other thing that a good financial advisor will do is they'll use what's called a risk comfort questionnaire. And the purpose of that is to find out where does this person fit? What do they think about? For example, if I were to make a recommendation of a very aggressive investment to someone that's conservative, they're going to watch it go up and down and it makes them uncomfortable to watch that balance. The flip of that is if I show something conservative to a client and they're pretty much more aggressive, they kind of go, what do I need you for? This didn't do anything. So there's a fine line there. The question is, where does that person fit? And yes, I have young people that are very conservative. I have older people that are aggressive. And that kind of goes against the general trend. The general trend is if you're young, you should probably be more aggressive because you got time. You can allow the market to go up and down and you'll recover just fine. If you're older, you probably should be more conservative. Some of the people that had a lot of money invested in 2008 that were aggressive saw funds go down, kind of like what you did. And some of them had to continue working for a while, waiting for that fund to come back up. So being good is partly listening and using the tools to find out where that person fits and what their thought processes are so you're matching investment with their risk profile where they're comfortable. So let's kind of use me and me as an example, right? I'm, I'm 38 years old. Um, okay. I have, I have, you know, 30 years or so before I'm going to be able to retire, maybe 40, who knows with social security nowadays. Uh, right. I, I have a daughter who's six years old. My main thing right here is I want to help her with college. Um, something I never got. I was in, I was in the Navy, but my Navy thing didn't pay for all of my college. I still had to come out of pocket and had student loans when I got done for, you know, probably, um, I'm not going to say it probably a little more than half of the, of my college education, which was a burden on me when I was starting out in the workforce. And I don't, I want to try to make sure that that's not a burden for my daughter, whether she's either a uh, has something that I can gift her that she can use for that or B she um, works through college like other people do then and come out of that. Maybe it takes you longer to go to college, but you are debt free, you know, at the end of that, it's just, I'm, I'm all wholeheartedly all about being debt free, but you know, so those are some of my goals. And of course I want to retire. Um, and, and so where, where would I, where would I start? I, I have a, I'm trying to remember what the name of this app is that my wife got us on, but it's uh, like you invest your, uh, your spare change or whatever, when you use your debit card. And then, uh, and then it also allows you to create like an IRA um, that's there that I put $25 a month in right now. So it's like my investment strategy currently. And then my mutual fund that I'm not currently putting any money into. Well, actually what's interesting on that one mutual fund you had that fell off in value I'm guessing that you stayed there until it came back. Is that true? I still have it. I'm not, it's, it's the only one that I have. So I haven't, I'm not going to get rid of it. Okay. Uh, what's interesting is there was a study out called the Dalbar study several years ago. And what they did is they looked at a group of investors and said, okay, what is your overall portfolio rate of return? And I probably need to get to my specifics, but it was in the ballpark of like 4.8%. That same time period, the stock market was up a little over 10%. And so everybody's going, okay, what's the deal here? They went back, 
had more questions to those same investors. And what they found was typically an investor would tend to follow the media. That means is they'd hear, oh, the market's going down some. They go, oh, well, well, I guess I should panic some. And then the next day, the market's going down some more and the market's going down some more. They finally go, you know, this scares me. I don't want to lose my money. So they'll move it over to what's called a cash account or a money market account. Then they wait for the media. Time goes by. The market starts to go back up. They hear the news media saying, yeah, the market was up today. A few days later, market's up again. They finally go, well, maybe that's over with. I can go back in the market. So what that study found out was that people would react to the media, move their money, wait to go back into that same account, and they missed the largest run-up. So the fact that you stayed there was good. I would hope that your fund might have come back and should be well in a plus by now. But getting an investment strategy is one that you build and you create an asset allocation that makes sense to the client, and then you monitor it and you kind of watch it. And then you see if there's some accounts in there that should be changed or not. In answer to your college question, most states now have what they call a 529 plan, which refers to the ability to set aside money for college education for your kids and or other people, but generally for kids. And the funds that you put in there are not tax deductible, but they grow tax deferred. And when you get ready to take them out, they come out on an income tax-free basis for educational expenses. That's the account most commonly used for people to say, I want to accumulate some money for my kids so they can go to college. And that can be a very attractive way to do it. A lot of states then also provide for an Oklahoma, or in my case, Oklahoma, but they'll provide for a state income tax deduction. So you get a chance to put funds in, you may get an income tax break on your state taxes. But the fact that it grows tax deferred, and then you can take it out then for educational expenses without taxes, is the strongest way to accumulate funds for a child's education. Most of those investments, you have the ability to pick different funds. So in other words, it can be aggressive or moderate conservative. But most of the 529 plans have what they call target funds. What that says is that if a child's gonna go to college at age 18, if you begin that account at age two or three, the account starts off with a fairly aggressive posture. The idea being that they're gonna look for it for growth. As the child begins to progress in age, those accounts become more conservative under the idea that when they hit age 18, we don't want to see that account fluctuate a lot. So these age-based or target funds seem to be very, very popular in the 529 plans. That's probably one of the best tools that I have business with clients about to save money for college. Yeah, that that that's something that my wife and I had looked into was the 529. It's just, it's kind of, I don't have a, I, have, I don't have a financial advisor. I need to get one. <laughs> yeah, uh, good idea. <laughs> well, because I mean, when you look at 529 plans too, there's like a, a couple of different things. They have like 529 CDs. They have 529 mutual funds. They have 529 uh, directly sold programs or advisor sold programs. And it's just, it's, uh, you know, not knowing what really any of those are or how they work or, you know, what the, what the risk is too. Cause like, I know the mutual funds would be in the stock market so that might be a little riskier than a cd or something like that um where where would you direct your your people to look at well the ones that i use the most probably are those age-based funds so again if somebody's going into this with a child that's age two uh, being more aggressive i think i want to take advantage of it because that's got the potential for growth and i got time to recover so if there's a couple of dips we're not as concerned because we may have another 16 years to go if a person starting something like that at age 15, it's a whole different ballgame. We don't want to be so aggressive with it. I still think those accounts have a lot of merit to them and worth learning about, especially when you think if I have two children, I'm saving for both. One happens to get a scholarship. 
I can move those funds to the other child for their educational expenses. A lot of flexibility built in. Your spouse may want to go back to to school. She can use those funds. Yeah, so, so how does that, how does that work with an only child? Like if you have a five twenty nine, and then that child ends up getting a scholarship or something like that, um, and they don't need the money at all, and neither parents are going to go back to school. Is there an option to do anything else with that money? Because you've been saving it for eighteen years or however long. Yeah, really. At that point in time, the program was designed to fund educational expenses. That's what it was for. So if you decide to take out at that time, this can be a taxable event over the game. Well, I guess if you have that much money in there and your kid got a scholarship, I guess you might be okay with paying the taxes on that, huh? <laughs> yeah, you kind of be thrilled if they got a scholarship. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of money for you. Good deal. <laughs> yeah. so my- I'm going to go pay uh, uh, taxes on this and buy you a car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> give, them, give them a reward for doing so well for getting the scholarship. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, yeah. I really love our conversation today. It's uh, it's really, it's awesome. And I, I want to talk about your book, right? Uh, your book, okay. it's, uh, so you want to be a financial advisor. Why not be one of the best? Uh, what made you decide to write that book? I'm, I mean, a lot of people will write about financial advisors or write about the, you know, about the, the, I guess the strategic and tactical components of being a financial advisor, but this is kind of like a book written for other financial advisors of like, you know, kind of maybe calling them out a little bit. Yeah, I'll tell you what spurred it on. I've been involved in training for several years, and I get a kick out of doing that. And a lot of people have said, wow, you made that so simple. Gosh, thanks. And over the past several years, people have finally said, you know, you need to be putting that in the book. It's really good. It's easy to follow and easy to understand. So a lot of the prompting has come from people that have been in classes with me. And I thought, you know, I kind of enjoy doing that. So that's what's really started the whole concept. And I got to writing on that thing. It was a lot of fun. And I included a few chapters that I thought were important. Again, if you want to be one of the best financial advisors, uh, there's a chapter in there that deals with personality profiles and kind of understanding your client better. So when you communicate, you're communicating on their style. I think that's incredibly important. So let, let me pause you there about personality okay. profiles. I love personality profiles, by the way. I actually have these cards sitting in front of me from a uh, uh, interviews that I've done in the past and it's called breaking your code, your bank code, uh, mybankcode.com. And uh, they're really cool because they're little cards. And I, I use these in everyday life when I'm talking to people because I want to know like, are they an action person, right? Are they blueprint? You know, are they new, a nurturer or knowledge person? Is that what you mean? So like how you can uh, relay the information to them kind of in, in a way that they're more receptive to it? Yeah, I can probably take my best example. I was going through a course, which I refer to in the book, called Social Style Sales Strategy. And I was in the middle of the course when I out to see a client. And I took my typical proposal out there with all the backup information and everything. And I'm going through this thing in detail. And Pat reaches over and closes my book and says, Richard, yeah, is this good for me? Yeah, should I do it? Yeah, that's all I need to know. And I'm going through this course learning about drivers and Pat was a classic driver. Really all I need to know is what's the bottom line? Is this good for me? Should I do it? And then if I'm visiting with an analytical, if I did something that short, they go, wait a second, you just kind of skimmed across the top. What makes this work? Yeah. Investment have you suggested? And so with that person, I communicate in much more detail. With the driver, I kind of give them bullet points. And you kind of learn that personality style and it helps them to build that relationship. So I think those are very, very important. Yeah, it's definitely helped me a lot in communication because I'm kind of a, I'm like an analytical action taker. Like I'll take action before I go through the analytics, but I also kind of will will touch on the analytics, which is, 
uh, you know, kind of something where I'm at. And and when I come at somebody, you know, like uh, who's all about knowledge or nurturing or something like that, it it definitely throws a hiccup in our ability to communicate. And I've had to take a step back. And you know, a lot of times what I've noticed too is like you can kind of gauge on the type of person it is the way that they greet you. You know, um, are they trying to give you a hug? Are they trying to shake your hand? Uh, you know, some of those those kind of greeting things are kind of tells that I've noticed about uh, you know picking what type of personality someone might have. <laughs> yeah, the first question might be, well, how long have you been in the business? What company you represent? Well, now I know I got somebody that's much more interested in detail versus the other person to say how long this is going to take. <laughs> yep. Obviously, this person's kind of concerned about time, so it does give you some te- uh, telltale signs from the beginning. I had another comment I made in the book was referred to because of an example. A very good couple of friends of mine went into a high-end dealership to buy a car and she was the buyer and it's interesting how the salesperson immediately geared all his comments to the husband and you know she kind of went how come you're not talking to me and so they left the dealership went to another dealership and that person picked up on the fact that she was going to buy the car so he started talking to her what are you after what are you trying to accomplish and it made the sale but it was the difference between listening to the client finding out who the real buyer is and what they want to accomplish versus just making assumptions. Yeah, that's a good point. My wife and I bought an SUV a couple of years after our daughter was born. We had a, a little Mazda hatchback, which uh, was great on gas mileage, but it didn't really work for car seats. And I'm six foot two and, you know, having, <laughs> to do, having to do all that, it didn't really work that well. So I'm like, let's go get us an SUV or something. And we had the same same scenario happen. We went to a Dodge dealership. We were looking at like a Dodge Durango and um, we walked in and the guy's like talking to me. You know, and I'm yeah. going, I'm going, I was like, oh, hey, I'm not buying a car. She is. It's her, it's a, she, it's her vehicle. I'm just, you know, I just drove her here. <laughs> and and how I, would you feel if you, you know, you and your wife were in a financial situation where maybe she just inherited some money and she wants to talk to somebody because she's scared about what to do. And you go in to visit with a financial advisor and he immediately starts talking to you and not her. Yeah. And, that would be a big turnoff for my wife. Yeah. I mean, wait she, a minute. She, <laughs> I'm like, the one here with the money. Yeah. You know, I got the questions. Talk to me. Yeah, hundred percent. We did the same thing. We ended up going to a Ford dealership and buying a Ford Escape. Yeah. Perfect example. Yeah. Perfect example. So, what are some? So, I think our industry has reached that point in time where there's a. Sometimes there's a kind of image of what people are like, especially some people that sell only stocks or kind of just do it by phone. They may have never met the client in person. And I think the true financial advisor that works with the entire portfolio is one that spends time with the client as that first meeting before they ever talk about product and finding out about the person again what are your objectives how do you feel about things why did you come see me have you ever had an experience with another financial advisor that was bad tell me about it and so those are things that i think create that relationship the goal here is to create a client and have that relationship such that you maintain the client from now on they trust you they're always going to call you come back to you and that's the goal yeah trust is is the most important thing and i think especially when you're you know you're working with somebody's livelihood i mean it it, it's terrible that there's one thing that kind of drives what we can and can't do in life and that's money and and you got to have trust with the person that you're working with in that respect because you know it's the it's the thing that you'll have to fall back on in the event of an emergency or you know something to fall back on uh, as you retire and making sure that those funds last and um, so when you do financial advising and when you're in the book, have you, I know you've heard of this. I hear, I hear all these radio commercials all the time of, with financial advisors and, you know, f- portfolio managers and all that. And it's the word fiduciary. How does that fall into what you do? 
Yeah, we, we have fiduciary responsibility. And one of the primary things is that anything that we would suggest to a client has to be at least the same thing we do ourselves. And so you have an ethics issue there that you're selling something or offering something that makes a lot of sense and fits the scenario exactly, not something based upon what's going on in, in your company. So there's a fiduciary responsibility to work with the client from the ethical standpoint. And then there's some other fiduciary responsibilities, especially when it comes to retirement plans. So all of that affects me. Our industry has come up with some pretty elaborate compliance departments. So they've got a lot of restrictions on us and things that we can and can't do. So the goal here is to follow those guidelines correctly, do what's right for the client. Again, you're gonna be one of the best financial advisors. You do what's right for the client. That's just a common thing to be doing. That's awesome. Well, I want to appreciate you uh, jumping on and talking a little bit about yourself in the book. And uh, where, where can people find this, Richard, uh, your new book? Where is it like just everywhere? You can go to Amazon. You can get it everywhere. <laughs> well, I don't know about the term everywhere, but I think it's in a lot of places. But yes, it is on Amazon. Just by talking in the title, it'll bring it up. I think I saw it on Barnes & Noble, too. Is that correct? Might have. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So what's next for you as you're, you know, been in this uh, field for quite a long time, you have this book that's out. Are you going to write another book? What, what are, what's the notes the next 10 years look like for you, Richard? Well, one of the suggestions that was made to me was to do another book, but do it a little bit more technically oriented. I don't know if I'll tackle that or not. I might. Like I say, one thing that I've been focusing on is working with family owned businesses and small businesses. And the succession issue has been a very, very important topic. Just as a statistic, 70% of family-owned businesses will not make it to the second generation. And only 30% of those will ever make it to the third. And usually it's lack of planning. And so that's been a lot of fun to do. And it's just great to have people come up and hug you and say, wow, thank you. That's made a difference in our lives to have our affairs together, have our estate plan together, know what the succession plan is going to be. So that then gets into retirement plans and it gets into buy and sell agreements. Buy and sell agreements has probably been one of my specialties for several years where you have partners in a business. And the question becomes, okay, if one of them were to die, how do you get that business interest back? It's an asset that they can pass on to any year they want to. And likely you might not want to be in business with that heir. So the agreement's very important. Beyond that, uh, I see agreements out there that address buy and sell, but there's things they leave out. Over the years, I've seen stuff such as, is there a provision in your agreement that says if your partner became disabled, what do you do? And it's going to be a tough tough conversation to have with them to say, look, I can't carry you anymore. And then I've seen businesses that were in business and when they begin to dissolve, there was no plan on how they dissolve it. So people have suggested to me with that kind of background, I ought to do a little bit more technically oriented stuff. It kind of deals with business planning. So. That could happen in the future. We'll see. Other than that, I'm enjoying working with my clients, get a kick out of it, and uh, probably going to keep working for a while because it's fun. Awesome. Well, Richard, we appreciate you joining the show today. Thanks for being on. And I want to make sure everybody knows that they can go pick up Richard's book at Barnes & Nobles. It's on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, uh, and everywhere books are sold. Richard, thanks for joining us on Finding Your Frequency. Ryan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure visiting with you. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll have to do this again sometime. You guys, check out our radio show all over uh, iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere that podcasts are distributed. And, of course, you can always check out all the great content on voiceamerica.com, the leader in live Internet talk radio.